I, I have to tell you up front that End Times is probably my least favorite subject in biblical theology. But that's sort of relative. It is interesting. The reason I say that is because, and I'm going to try to make this clear, I'm not married to any of the positions. I want to say this not in a negative way, but a positive way. I don't really care. I don't really care what position you have. I'm not going to try to disabuse you of anything that you already think. Because uh, to be honest with you, there are a lot of things about eschatology that I think are really indeterminate. You really can't know. Uh, you can guess. Some guesses might be better than others, but we really can't even tell that in some places. What I'm more interested in is when you think about your position, think about things you've heard, think about things you embrace, think about things that are really important to you as far as your position, that's great. But I want you to go away understanding why it is you have that position. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gauntz. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in to Canary Cry Radio this week. We have a very special show. I'm so very excited. My name is Basil. And I'm Gons, and we have Dr. Michael Heiser as a guest today. He is um, the academic editor for the Logos Bible Software. He has a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages with an expertise on ancient Israel and Egyptology. Uh, he's also the author of the novel The Facade, and he runs several blogs, including Paleo Babel, uh, UFO Religions, and um, he was recently featured on Chris White's recent debunkumentary, Ancient Aliens Debunked. He also has a podcast called The Naked Bible Podcast, and he also runs an online institute for ancient language and biblical theology called Memra, and I call him the guy who makes all the stuff we talk about credible. It's Mike Heiser. How you doing, Mike? Yeah, pretty good. That was a good intro. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Oh man, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, very excited to have you on the show. We've had a, quite a few people request that we get in contact with you. So, just a personal thanks for myself, and uh, I'll extend a thanks from our listeners for uh, giving us some time tonight. Yeah, thank you. Well. The first question I wanted to ask you is based on some of the things that, that I've heard you say in regards to some of the theological problems or uh, the way you address the possibility of life on other planets. And I kind of want to start there and then kind of move into the divine council topic. Okay. Um, but I've heard you say that, you know, it's not a problem for you. And, you know, we've heard in the past few years, the C- senior Vatican scientist talk about how he wants to baptize an alien and... Um, you know, assuming <laughs> that there is ET life on other planets and, you know, they're not demonic things. How and if they're you, not human specifically. Right. Too. How would you handle the question of their salvation or since God became a man, it became Jesus, you know, a human. What does that mean if there are actual, you know, quote unquote space brothers and they are actual biological beings from other planets? What would you say to that? How would you respond well, without being too um, too irreverent, I guess um, you know I can see the the Pope and other Catholic officials talking about wanting to baptize aliens because I mean if 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 you're thinking that 
sprinkling some water on someone and, and uttering the, the name of Jesus, which mm-hmm. to me just treats it as an incantation. Well, then I guess you want to do that to as many things as you can. Right. You know, it, it doesn't make a lot of theological sense, though. I mean, the, the atonement, the gospel, as it's clearly articulated in especially the New Testament, but I would argue both Testaments, is that God has provided a way to address the problem of human fallenness and human sinfulness. That is, the whole plan of salvation, salvation history as revealed in the Bible, is terrestrial, it's earthly, it's directed at humans. Mm -hmm. So, the whole point of worrying or wondering about alien salvation, whether we sprinkle water on them or do something else to them, is sort of pointless uh, from the perspective of biblical theology. Uh, the, the atonement, what Jesus did on the cross was done for humanity. Hmm. Now, we know from, from uh, epistles like Colossians, uh, Paul sort of waxes eloquent about the peripheral benefits uh, to the work on the cross, you know, specifically that all of, of creation. And again, you have to realize this is the Apostle Paul writing in the first century you know, he doesn't know about the expansive universe like we do, but he's using language that's, that's inclusive uh, of that. So he's saying, look, you know, what Jesus did on the cross has a, a residual peripheral benefit in that creation, again, as he understood it, and, and we could say as we know it, is, again, suffering imperfection. And so when the New Testament talks about a new heaven and a new earth, a new created order, obviously that refers to earth, but, you know, it, it may refer to something beyond that. Mm-hmm. And that, that, is a, that will be a perfected thing, a perfectible thing, uh, because of what Jesus did. Now, we, we don't have that explained how that works in the New Testament. Uh, there's no detail to it, but again, Paul assumes that because of what happened on the cross, uh, it takes care of the the rift in the relationship between God and human beings. Of course, if if we believe in in, in the promise of the gospel, right. but in some other way, it extends uh, beyond that to, to God's creation. And so, if there are aliens out there, I would say that they are part of God's creation, whether you believe that's. Whether you're a theistic evolutionist or an evolutionary creationist or a traditional six-day creationist, I don't care what you are, You, every one of those groups is going to affirm mm-hmm. that the ultimate point of origin for all that is material, okay, all that we know, comes from the hand of God. And right. so, it's really part of job, uh, God's job description to, to know and to figure out how the residual benefits of of the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection relate to all that. That's above my pay grade. We're not told anything about it in the New Testament other than the fact that, hey, there's going to be a residual benefit. But the work on the cross was for humankind. I don't know how much clearer the New Testament could be. Absolutely. Now, do you think? I mean, this is just my, where my own head goes. Is if there are, is if there is another, um, you know, species or another planet that's fully populated like ours, I would assume that they would probably have their own story and their own sort of um, 
uh, relationship with God, and and he would be working his own uh, salvation plan on that planet as well. That would probably, you know, may or may not look similar to ours. Well, I, that- I would, I would think, you know, in, in broadest strokes possible, uh, we would have to say again that I, I would have to say that that's possible. Again, that's up to God. Right. Uh, we, we we tend to ask questions like this because. We, you know, when we think of a of an extraterrestrial civilization, they have certain attributes that we would share with them that we have as well. They have sentience, self awareness, intelligence, communication ability, you know, whatnot. And and because we, and I catch what I'm saying here, because we imagine that they mm-hmm. are like that and share those things, we have this sense that that our our spiritual needs and condition are somehow transferable to them, that, that they would have the same things. Now, un- until we actually encounter uh, one of those, we don't actually know if that's true. But again, the, the, the impulse that you're, you're describing, that you're expressing, I think is pretty normal, you know, because if, if they're like us in, in some of these ways, then we naturally start to think about the things that we are concerned about, they might be concerned about as well. You know, they they might be in the same boat, so to speak. And so we we start to ask these religious questions. But you know, ultimately, it, it's a guess, and that's all it is. Uh, right. You know, we as human beings, we have this impulse to uh, presume, and and I would say actually even need something out there to be greater than us to sort of comfort us or make sense of life the way it is even if you're a materialist atheist uh, you, you tend to replace theism with uh, material processes and the grandness of the universe and even though logic would drive you to the conclusion that everything is random and meaninglessness you still really don't like that <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. They're, 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 you still want to be able to quote unquote make sense of things again it's just a natural human impulse and so, even if you know ET out there would be a complete materialist atheist, again we we sort of presume that they would want to, you know, bring some sort of emotional or or intellectual order to their lives as as they are lived. You know, again, it's just a human impulse; it's a right. human thing. So it's very normal, you know, to ask these sorts of questions. But you know, to to sort of give each other biblical ultimatums about. Well, you know, give us a biblical theology of this. Well, there, you know, there is no biblical theology of it. I mean, you, you right. can talk, you can talk biblically about it, which is what we're doing here over the course of the last few minutes. I mean, you, you can do things like that, but you know, ultimately, until you, until extraterrestrial intelligent life is actually on the table, all of this is just sort of intellectual. You know, it's mind candy, and I don't know how else can you describe it. Yeah, absolutely. Can you walk us through the divine council? It's something that really caught my attention uh, when I first started looking into all sorts of things with ETs and UFOs and, and things and trying to understand it with the Bible and how the, how it all relates. Your interview with Derek Gilbert on A View from the Bunker really opened up a whole new world of understanding the Bible from the beginning, right from the beginning, from Genesis all the way to the end. And I think our audience would benefit a whole lot by having you walk us through just the whole concept of the divine council. So can you 
Mm. Help us do that a little bit and, and help us understand um, where you're coming from with that. Sure, as, as opposed to linking to Derek. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, yeah. I you, wish I could remember every word I said after that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I think, uh, yeah, Derek, you know, he did a great job and you did a great job on that interview. And actually, we probably can link to that interview. Well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> uh, so whatever was missed here, you, you know, can we can fill the gaps yeah. with Derek's interview. But I, I know one of the first things you start off with is sort of understanding the word Elohim. The divine council, on one hand, is something really, really simple. I mean, it, and, and what I mean by that is it's it's very self-evident. If you are not uh, dependent on English translation, I don't mean that you have to be a Hebrew scholar. Even if you're doing things like using an interlinear, uh, if you're really paying attention uh, at the word level to certain passages. There should be things that you, your eye is catching that relate to this subject we call the Divine Council. It, on one level, the Divine Council is as simple as a term used by academics based on passages like Psalm 82 and, and a few others uh, for referring to the heavenly host, you know, God's bureaucracy, God's um, administrators uh, in the heavens with him, uh, basically doing what he commands them to do and and function in the way that he uh, desires them to function. So, I mean, that that's familiar turf uh, to uh, really anybody that has, I guess, a, a reasonable acquaintance with Christianity. But we usually think of those beings as angels. The, 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 the trick is, and here's where it becomes a, a more complex thing that, that rattles people's cages, that... In many passages where this heavenly host is described, and they are specifically described as being in a council, Psalm 82.1 is probably the, the textbook example where it just point, point blank. God is standing in the presence of, in Hebrew, uh, his Adat El, which is his council of El or the council of God, or you know, some, some scholars take it as an adjective and just say divine council. So when you start using a, a phrase like that, that sort of phraseology and thinking is found elsewhere outside the Bible for the heavenly administrations of other religions. And we, uh, as Christians, are used to referring to our own heavenly group as God and the host of heaven and everybody else's heavenly group as a pantheon. You know, of, of, of deities that really don't exist, you know, wink, wink, you know, that kind of thing. So, but when you get this cross uh, terminology, that sort of changes the game, or at least in terms of, of how I need to think about what I see in the text. And I'll go back to Psalm 82.1 for, for your listeners. Uh, I'll bring out the key, key text here. Uh, the Bible says in Hebrew, in Psalm 82.1, it says, Elohim... Nitzav Ba'adat El. Elohim, okay, and we usually sort of remember, again, most Bible students that, that have gone beyond Bible reading, the English Bible, have probably come across the fact that one of the terms for God, one of the more common ones, is Elohim. So here we have Elohim standing in this divine council. Now we know that that is a single being because grammatically the the verbal there, nitzav, it's a participle, it's singular in terms of the grammar, so no problem. God's up there standing around in this divine council. Well, the second half of the verse says, 
in the midst of the Elohim, he passes judgment or he holds judgment. So mm. the care of Elohim, it's the very same term used in the previous line for a single being. And now we've got in the midst of those beings, it has to be plural. The first one, the first Elohim is holding court. He's, he's holding judgment. He's passing judgment. He's, he's doing something as a judge in this divine courtroom, this divine council sort of scene. So right there, you have the same word, Elohim, that in one sense is singular, a singular entity, and in another sense is plural. Now that freaks people out because we are used to looking at the letters G, O, and D when they're capitalized and thinking that that term, G-O-D, only points to one specific set of unique attributes. That's why we capitalize it in English. And when it's not referring to the being, you know, the, the God of Israel, the, the God of the Bible, then we, we lowercase it. Again, just that little publishing technique you know, tells you something about where people are, are coming from because the Hebrew right. doesn't have capitals, okay? It's just Elohim. Hmm. There's no there's no convention in the Hebrew text, and the scribes didn't use any convention to distinguish the term. So you have the God of Israel and other beings referred to with the very same term, in this case, in the very same verse. And this isn't the only verse in the Old Testament that refers to entities other than the God of Israel as Elohim. In fact, there's there's four or five other ones. There are the there are the, the, the Shadim, the demons that usually gets translated in Deuteronomy 32.17. They are called Elohim in that verse. The, the spirit of the deceased human Samuel, the prophet, is referred to as an Elohim in 1 Samuel 28.13. Wow. You know, depending on how you take a few passages in Genesis, you can have angels also uh, obliquely referenced as Elohim. Uh, the angel of Yahweh is referred to as Elohim. I mean, you, you've got a bunch of Elohim running around in the Hebrew Bible. Our English translations obscure all that because the, the God of the Bible will usually get capital G-O-D. If it's my name, Yahweh, it'll, it'll get Lord in all caps. That's the, the publishing convention, the typesetting convention for that. If it's not, then you might read small G-O-D-S. You might read something really that really fudges it, like lords or powerful beings or judges or, you know, something that, that really <laughs> deliberately, it just, it just deliberately obscures what's actually in this thing that Christians say that they believe is inspired, the Bible, the original text of the Bible. So, you know, when you, when you point these things out to people, you know, I, I'm just used to, at this point, people looking at me like I got two heads. You know, it doesn't even phase me anymore. Right. Yeah, the, this just seems like an almost impossible thing to try to, um, you know, talk to conventional Christians about. You know I don't even worry about it anymore. <laughs> I just think about it and, well, you know, should you do that? But, you know, I, I, I'm at the point now where I am, I am no longer going to protect people from their Bible. I'll just tell that. Look, I'm not here to protect you from your Bible. You don't need the protection. Okay, it's it's just the Bible. Don't get freaked out by it. You know, just give me give me a few minutes and I'll explain what's going on here. 
but you need to start realizing that if you're doing nothing more than reading the surface text of your English Bible, and, and again, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm glad people do that. A lot of people don't even read it at right. all. So I'm glad people do that. But if, when, when you start to assume that, you know, I, hey, I got this stuff down now, you know, I, I read my NIV here, you know, 10 minutes a day, you know, <laughs> theology. No, no, actually, you don't. You really don't. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm not saying that because, uh, you know, I'm, I have a PhD and I like to beat on people. You know, I, it, that just isn't it at all. I want to encourage you. Uh, I, I like to show people the things that they don't know because I hope that it, it, it just gets them into it, you know, that it, it creates an appetite for, for discovery, you know, for investigation, because that's what it did, did to me. But I'll be honest, you know, some of the things that I hold as routine now, the first time I saw them, it's like, oh, boy, what do I do with that? You know, so I, I understand that. But I'm glad that I didn't have people protect me from my Bible. And so I, I'm just not doing that anymore. Right. So let's go back to the Elohim thing. Now, let me ask a very simple, straightforward question. Now, if you're the biblical writer or writers, okay, you get a bunch of these guys in the room. You get Isaiah over here and Ezekiel and, you, you know, Moses is attending today. And you get them all in a room and you say, hey, you know what I just found out you guys did? You guys used Elohim for more than one individual, more than one entity. Than, than just the God of Israel. What what are you guys doing? I think they'd look at you and go, are you a moron? <laughs> don't, don't you understand that if we use the term for more than one thing, okay, for the God of Israel and for other things, give us some credit. We know that the God of Israel is superior to all those other things. So you're the one that has the problem because you're assuming that we are attributing one unique set of attributes to that term, and that is not the way we're using it. If By virtue of the fact that we use it elastically for other beings, that tells you we don't assign one set of attributes to that word. Give us a break, okay? You know, what Elohim really means is it, it is a word that you would use of any being, any entity that by nature is not embodied and lives, as it were, in the non-human spiritual world. It, it's what I call a place of residence term. So, of course, Samuel is an Elohim because he's dead, all right? He's, he's disembodied. <laughs> he lives over there. You know, he passed over. Look, these are the terms we still use today. He passed over. He lives in the spiritual world now. He's in heaven. Okay, he's in this other place that humans don't inhabit. And because he's over there now, he's an Elohim. He's one of them. He's, he's at the same address. Okay, he's in that realm. That's all the term means. So I like to say it this way. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is an Elohim. But no other Elohim is Yahweh. Right. With that realm, within that realm, there's power, hierarchy, and differentiation in terms of attributes. But that those differ, that differentiation is not captured or conveyed through the use of the term Elohim. It has nothing to do 
with specific attributes. But again, our English translations just totally obscure that. So, you, you know, you're right. I'll, I'll go into a church and it, try, you know, this has only happened once or twice. I, I don't get invited to speak on this stuff. <laughs> but I go in there and just lay it out. And, and, and at first, like I said, I'm just used to people looking at me like I got two heads and say, oh, you'll get over that. Just, I don't have two heads. I know it looks that way. I just hold it on. You know, and, and then, you know, we'll go through it. And afterwards, it's like, oh, well, okay. That wasn't so hard. Right. You know, it, 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 it's not. It, it's just your Bible. Right. But, you know, we, we need to really, we tend to think that interpreting the Bible in context means I interpret it like my pastor preaches it. Or I interpret it the way Protestants do, or the way you know Catholics do, or the way evangelicals do. You know, I, I hate to break it to you, but all of those contexts are foreign. They are alien to the Bible. There's only there's only one biblical context, and that's the context of the writers that God, in His sovereignty and providence, picked to write the thing. Okay, it's their context. That is the biblical context, not something 25 or 3,000 years later. So if you're really going to learn to think like biblical writers, you have a lot of work to do. You, know, you, have, to, you have to think about their worldview. You've got to get, get, you know, get, wrap your mind around that. You've know, you got to understand the, the, the types of literature they, they employed in their writings and why they would pick this one and not that one. You know, you, you do have a language gap. It's it's Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It's not English you know, that they were working in. You have a religious background. You've got cultural backgrounds. All of this stuff, trying to recapture the the the, the intellectual you know world, the, the the world of the mind that the biblical writer had. When when you're able to tap into that, that informs the Bible because that's its own context. And frankly, that's exciting. Okay, I, again, I. I didn't. I wasn't. I wasn't born with a PhD, and when I became a Christian, I didn't get one. Okay, <laughs> I mean, it just. I, I started like everybody else did, and I'm, I'll admit I'm a little geeky. Okay, I, it, it it became an obsession, and but I like to think of it as a calling too. You know, that I, it wasn't. Right. You know, I I tried to give up a number of times because it was hard. I I went through graduate school for 15 years working full time. Trust me, I wanted to quit a lot. Okay, but I, I didn't, you know, because I was convinced that this is why I'm alive and I shouldn't quit. So I get it, but what I, what, I, what I want people to do is I want them to have some tenacity. I want, to, I want them to want to discover things. And it, it, it never gets old. You know, there's always something that, that I, you know, I'll read an article and some guy will be discussing some text like, well, I never saw that before. I got I to gotta go down that route trail. I've got I've to apply that to these 10 or 15 other things and just see if that really works. Right. You just see that stuff all the time. But the, the reason you see it is because you're doing it. You're looking. Right. And that's I want to get. I want people to get out of the stuff that I, that I do. I mean, you, you might hate me for a while. <laughs> It's tough love. But that's okay. You know, if, if it stimulates you somewhere down the road to really get into your Bible, then hey, that's all I'm asking. Right, right. So, so now that we're getting into our Bible now, 
and we are, uh, you know, taking all of those things into consideration. And now we know that the word Elohim uh, isn't quite what we thought it was. Where do we go from there? Well, I, I think in my own, you know, study, what <clears throat> one of the things that, that jumped out at me uh, and really was one of the the factors that led me to pick the dissertation topic that I did was I began to see how people on the other side, and, and again, I don't want to be unkind here or pejorative, but I was reading a lot of uh, critics, you know, biblical critics, who somehow couldn't grasp this, that they were they were using references to Elohim and making arguments from that to say, well, you know, the Israelites, the biblical writers couldn't be monotheists. Look at this. And again, I, I just hit myself in the head. Why is this so difficult? It looked, it's so obvious what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that actually, you know, they were looking at these terms as a threat uh, to monotheism and then arguing that Israelite thinking evolved from polytheism and all this kind of stuff. So, so that's where it took me because I, I, again, I was in an academic context. One of the most rewarding things that ever happened to me uh, in, in uh, my graduate training was I, I, I read a, this was actually after I, I, I finished, I was at an international conference in uh, Scotland. And I was reading a paper on Elohim. Okay, and so we're just about to start, and in the room walked a guy named Nicholas Wyatt, who was one of my favorite writers. I, I have no idea where the guy's at religiously, but he's a big name in Ugaritic studies and you know Israelite religion, all this all this strange stuff that I just regularly do. <laughs> he comes in, we'll sit, goes to the back of the room, sits down, I start reading my paper, and I get to this part about how Elohim is a place of residence term, and in the back of the room he. He just shouts out, "Yes!" <laughs> like, like, finally, somebody sees this. You know? and it was, That's it was, great. I don't even remember the rest of the conference. You know, just after that. But you know, I think again, that's the, it's the best compliment I think you can get as a as an academic is just somebody yeah, shouting in a room of their peers. Awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> he was he was so excited. You know, and and you know, Wyatt is a very out of the box kind of thinker. And so he had, we we chatted afterwards, you know, and he he'd been dissatisfied with this for a long time, and and he just thought that why is this such an issue, you know, I, you know, it it just uh, it it just resonated, you know, with him. So we had a we had a special moment there <laughs> between the two of us over over this one word, Elohim. You know? That's awesome. That's cool. But you know that, that's where it took me. So I w- I would say going going back to again the person who's not a graduate school geek, I think it, it ought to at least stimulate you to look at the terminology uh, for divine beings in both testaments and ask yourself: Is it really as simple as just calling everything an angel? Is that really it? Right. You know, and, it, and if it's not. Why are these terms getting used? What what might they signify? What's the point? Right. One of the things that that um, I wanted to ask you is that after establishing a little bit of what the Elohim and divine counsel is, how does that change the perspective of the narrative of the Bible as far as, you know, from the beginning? And especially I think Genesis 6 is a big one. Um, but how does that change the trajectory of, of reading your Bible? How, how can it help us sort of filter, uh, the, the you know, the reading of the Bible differently? 
Well, I think that I, in large part, I, I won't say, you know, with, uh, with respect to like everything, but it, to a large extent, it's not going to change uh, the conclusions or the, the, the main doctrinal points of, of, you know, Christianity or biblical theology. But what it does is it, it reframes a lot of them into what I would say is a, a comprehensive and coherent narrative uh, that a lot of these outlying passages that that just sound weird, you know, like Genesis six, and then this whole you know thing about you know this weird talk, talk about baptism in the ark, you know, and in, in, in Peter, and just any assortment of odd passages, you know, Naaman asking for dirt from Elijah, you know, after he feel like what's up with that, you know, that's just kind of a corny. All of these things have a place. They, they they fit somewhere in the worldview that results if you begin to approach the, the, the Bible, the very beginning, you know, with this, again, centerpiece, this divine counsel thing. Let me illustrate that a little bit. If you're thinking this way, then you, you realize, again, from a passage like Job 38, that not told when God created the non-human members of his host, his non-human family, his non-human council. We're just told that they were there at the foundation of the world. So you get to the creation, they're already there. God creates humanity. And look at look at what we have already now in Genesis 1, 26. Let us, God says, create humankind in our image. Again, people have struggled with this passage. I think it's really simple. God is speaking to a group, and in, in grammatical geeks speak, it's the plural exhortation. A single being is speaking to a group. That's why he says, let us. The group in this case is the divine council, the members of his heavenly host. God says, hey, I got a great idea. I'm going to create beings on this new planet, this new terrestrial thing that, that, that I just made, and I'm going to make them imagers of me. I'm going to make them representatives of me, my representatives on this place, just like you're my representatives in our realm. They're going to work for me like you work for me. You know, all this, this symbiotic thing, and you say, well, it says, let us create humankind in our image. So in some way, we are like God, but we are also like those other divine beings. And there's a host of ways and attributes that we share, intelligence, communication, ability, whatever, you know. You can spend a lot of time thinking about communicable attributes of God. It's a very traditional category of theology. But right away, that tells us that from the very beginning, God was interested in having a non-human family. This is why we get ter- sonship terminology of divine beings and of human. He wants a divine, he wants a family, there's a family in the in the divine realm and a family in the earthly realm. He wants the, that family to image him, to represent him, to obey him, to administer the, the, the creation, whatever tasks he has. So they do that, we do that. Again, there's this shared relationship. Then, of course, we get the, the fall, and that just undermines everything and destroys everything. It, it's actually, it actually becomes, in this view, because I don't take the, the quote-unquote serpent in Genesis 3 as a member of the animal kingdom. Uh, if you take, you know, and we, and we know from the New Testament that it wasn't a member of the animal kingdom. It was this entity you know, that opposes God. We, we go back to Genesis with this, and, and why isn't Eve shocked 
one of these being speaks to her? Well, the answer is that they're in Eden. Eden is where God lives, where God lives, his council is, because that's where they work. They work and live at the same place, the divine above. It's headquarters, it's the nerve center, it's HQ, you know, for everything that he's doing. And so he you know, sort of sees this, what's going on every day, you know, and one, of, one day one of them steps aside and says, hey, did God really say that, that the other thing? And it becomes a, a, a competition for lordship over the humans and even the human status. Uh, you know, lots of ancient texts, you know, describe this as sort of a, yeah, uh, it's about pride, but it's also about jealousy and pride of place. You know, we're more intelligent, we were here first, you know, that sort of thing. And if we get you to sin, God will eliminate you. So that, right. that's a very convenient thing. So it, 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 you have an internal conflict. And the whole idea of free will, why do we have evil? Well, we have it because it's a communicable attribute. We could not be imagers of God if we did not have true freedom. How could we be like God and not have freedom? I mean, God has perfect freedom. We don't have perfect freedom, but we have a number of attributes that God does. They are communicable. We have them to a lesser degree, but we nevertheless have them. Free will is one of those. They have it. The beings in the unseen world, we have it. God certainly has it. So you get all these things that sort of start to inform your thinking about key theological points, or key episodes in the Old Testament. The rest of it, you know, just goes on. It, Okay, you know, we have this fall, we have to t- take care of this problem. God decides to not destroy humanity. They're driven out from God's presence. They're kicked out of the family. Okay? The, the divine council setting, Eden is no more. Heaven is not on earth anymore. But it tells you, hey, this was God's original intent. When God started all this, he wanted the divine family and the human family to function as one. And this is why... You get sonship language. You get words like adoption in the New Testament. Again, children of God, sons of God, adoption, you know, being grafted in, all this terminology that gets sort of scattered around other places. Uh, it, it means something in the context of Eden. This is why the book of Revelation ends the same way that Genesis begins. It ends in Edenic uh, situations. So, you know, in terms of eschatology, you know, what, what is it all about? Ultimately, it's about defeating death, okay, which is, was the cost of Eden. They're kicked out of the garden. That means they, 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 they lose their immortality. They inherit mortality. They will die. They have to be redeemed. Jesus comes. He is the one, the human being, you know, God said to Eve, you know, someday a human being is going to come from your line to undo all that, that, that happened here. Okay, there's going to be a human being that does this. Now, she doesn't know that it's going to be an incarnation of deity. We get information like that later, but she just knows a little bit. Jesus comes, the kingdom of earth is to come with him the first time, the inauguration of the kingdom. It's not the entire kingdom because Jesus talks about the kingdom coming later. But we get this sort of installment, you know, what's going on. We're working our way forward into the past. We're working our way forward back to Eden, and, but one of the one of the coolest things, I think, when you get to the Tower of Babel, when you have the the whole Babel situation, everybody knows the story. You know, in in the church, uh, God divides the languages and the nations and all that stuff. Okay, that's boring. Let's move on to the patriarchal story. Well, this is this is one of the key events of the entire Bible, 
But you only really know that if you're looking at Deuteronomy 32. And Deuteronomy 32, uh, verses 8 and 9, just a, a critical, critical passage. Deuteronomy 32, 8. I've heard you talk about this in the past, and most of the translations at the end there says that the peoples were divided according to the number of the sons of Israel. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that's not correct. Right. Um, the verses eight and nine, um, I'll just read it from the ESV. It says when the most high, and again, we know who that is, gave the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. That's ESV. Verse 9 says, But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Now you say, what in the world is going on here? Okay. First, the, the difference between the readings. Sons of God is the demonstrably correct reading and not sons of Israel, both for textual reasons, manuscript reasons, and also just coherence or logic reasons. In terms of manuscripts, the the Dead Sea Scrolls read sons of God here. Uh, The traditional Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, of course, reads sons of Israel, but the Dead Sea Scroll material is a lot older uh, than, you know, the traditional text that has come down to us. Was officially standardized in 100 AD, uh, but that again, the Qumran material, the Dead Sea Scroll material, predates that, and it also reads that in the Septuagint. Septuagint uh, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Hebrew text that was used to produce that differs in places from again the traditional Masoretic text, and the Septuagint readings, of course, would be. By the Dead Sea Scroll material. So, what it comes down to is there's really no good manuscript or text critical reason to have sons of Israel there. And again, the second argument is that it doesn't make any sense to have sons of Israel there either, because when did God divide the nations? That was the Tower of Babel. Israel did not exist yet. Right. So God isn't going to be dividing them according to the number of the sons of Israel. Because Israel doesn't even exist yet. The very next chapter is the call of Abraham. You know, when you get the beginnings, what will become the nation of Israel. But even if you go back a chapter to chapter 10, the so-called table of nations, guess what? If you count the nations there, there's 70 of them, and Israel is not listed. Well, why is that? Because it didn't exist. Right. Okay, it was very simple. I mean, it's it's not it's not rocket science here. The uh, the reading Sons of Israel though is kind of interesting. And this issue, I don't know if I've ever gotten into this on a on a radio uh, interview before, because it's, it's a little technical. But Sons of Israel was put there at some point later by uh, Jewish scribes, probably because they wanted to strike a correlation. Uh, uh, not, not a correlation, but sort of a difference between their nation, Israel, and all the other nations. And so this kind of language about sons of, of Israel occurs like when, when Jacob goes down uh, to Joseph in Egypt. You, know, you get this terminology there. And it's interesting, the numbers that are, that are given in those Genesis chapters can be read a certain way, a number of different ways in the text. And you actually get, you can either have 66 or 70 or 72, depending on how you count people present or not present and, and all this stuff. And that's what's behind the New Testament 
uh, textual issue uh, with 70 and 72, like in passages where Jesus sends out uh, his disciples two by two. The number that he sends out is 70, but some manuscripts will say 72, and it goes back to this issue. But anyway, again, that was a little rabbit trail. But what you have here, (laughs) what you have here is a statement in Deuteronomy that when God divided up the nations, he married, so to speak, he he bound together the nations with certain divine beings, certain sons of God. He put the nations under their authority, and the nations were sort of designated to those sons of God, to those other divine beings. The, The parallel passage to this is Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20 and you're going you're going to see right away that it sounds uh you know very very similar here to Deuteronomy 32 8 uh Moses is warning the people not to commit idolatry and he says beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun the moon and the stars all the hosts of heaven you might be drawn away bowed down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under heaven but the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt. It sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 32.9. Look, everybody else, all these other nations are, are under the authority of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is Jacob. The Lord's portion is Israel, his, his people. So what this does is it creates a worldview. The rest of the Old Testament is explained pretty easily by virtue of this passage in God's mind, in the mind of his people, they were in a special covenant relationship with a single entity, the single God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Israel. All the other nations had been put under the authority of, of other gods, okay, the sons of God. Now, we look that, at that. And, and those being created by Yahweh. Yeah. I mean, just okay. every member of the heavenly host, you know, they're, they're derivative, they're contingent. There is only one creator in, in biblical theology. So you, you could know, say that they were sort of stewards over the other nations while... They were, they were lesser. They were stewards. They were designed to... I look, I look at this as the Roman one event of the Old Testament. You might be familiar with Romans 1 about this idea that God... He looked at the people who were being idolatrous and didn't want to obey him, and he just, Paul says, he gave them up, you know, to their own devices. Well, if you look at what's going on in Babel, if you know the purpose of a ziggurat, which is what the Tower of Babel was, a ziggurat, or, you know, a pyramid in, in Egyptian national religion anyway, but you, you get some of these sorts of structures, but we'll, let's focus on the ziggurat. The ziggurat was designed to reach to the heavens, so that it was creating a place where heaven could intersect with earth. You were you were trying to bring the deity down so that you could relate to the deity or you could offer to the deity or you, you could control the deity. I mean, you, basically, the, the logic of idolatry and the logic of this sort of stuff, these structures, is that you create a space, you create a sacred space where the deity will meet you so that you can either worship it or relate to it or barter with it, get into a good relationship with it so that you gain something by it. And I think the the fundamental reasons why Israel was not permitted 
to construct a graven image and and had to construct its own worship space according to designs that God you know laid out was to teach them one fundamental lesson Yahweh cannot be tamed okay he cannot be brought down and and made to stand at a certain place where now we have a conversation okay he is not to be tamed and and this is the logic of, of idolatry the, the human creates a thing that the deity responds to in biblical theology okay, god dictates all that you know you don't that is not your providence and and it's really like a, an effort to recreate the edenic situation we want god to come back here and and we want to you know god to be right here with us on earth again and you know we're going to set up this thing. no it isn't going to work that way yes god wants to be back on earth he wants to take care of the human problem but it's on his terms his timing his way not yours and he he'd given commands when they came out of the ark this is what you do now Instead of doing that, dispersing, being fruitful and multiplying, notice it's the same Genesis language. Okay, instead of doing that, they decide, no, we're, we're going to make a place right here where God will meet us and, and become known you know, for, for, for that and I guess a whole host of other things, the fact that we could pull this off. And God says, forget it. Forget it. If you don't want to do what I've told you to do, enough of you. I'm going to give you what you want. You 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 know you want a deity that you can control. You want somebody other than me. Well, let, let's try that. Let's try that for a while. I'm going to forsake the nations. I'm going to put you under the authority of lesser beings. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start over. I'm going to go talk to this guy in Or, and I'm going to call him just because I'm deciding to do it. And I'm going to make a new people. I'm going to make a new family. And I'm going to make a new administration on earth with him. Goodbye. <laughs> right. So at, at this point, what story of the old Testament, it's Israel against the nations. Right. It's the descendants of Abraham against the other people. It's Yahweh against the other gods. Now, you know, God doesn't, the interesting thing about the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 in verse three, God does not completely write off the nations. He designs that his people now that he's he's creating literally out of nothing, okay? Because he has to the the, the birth of Isaac is, is going to be supernatural because Abraham and Sarah can't have kids. It is literally out of nothing, but their offspring now are going to be the conduit through which the nations are brought back into relationship with Yahweh, and we see Israel sometimes succeed, mostly fail through the Old Testament, but ultimately, what do we get in the New Testament? We get someone from the line of Adam, the line of Abraham, of course, the line of David, come, in, you know, God is incarnate in that lineage. You know, we get, we get Jesus, we get the whole gospel, where the, the people of God now are not, the, the church is circumcision neutral. Okay, it includes the nations by definition. You know, Paul, obsessed, you know, at the end of his life with going to Rome. Why would Paul care, or excuse me, going to Tarshish um, and, and Rome, both those places in Romans 15, he, he alludes to this. Why would he care? Why would he care to do that? You know, I, I, I got to get this place because if you look at a map of the Old Testament table of nations, there's a far eastern point and a far western point. The far western point is Tarshish. 
it's, it was the furthermost point in the Western world known at the time, literally encompassed east and west, the scope of the entire Mediterranean, the world as they knew it. And so Paul what starts his, his ministry to Jews, and think about the day of Pentecost, you, you have Jews everywhere, the farthest remote portion of east, because that's where they were exiled. And now people, the gospel is being taken from that end, and Paul's ministry, when, when you know, we get with Pentecost and Peter, Paul's ministry sweeps all the way westward, but he's short of one spot. He says, I need, and the New Testament word for it is, Paul says twice, I must get to Spain. He's in Rome. He's in prison. I finally made it to Rome. This was a key location, but I have to get to Spain. I expect to come to, to, to get to Spain. Why? Because Spain was the New Testament term for Tarshish. Okay, Paul, it, Paul believed that he was, <clears throat> he was the key figure to reclaim the nations of the world for for Yahweh. He he read this, he quotes Isaiah 66, it says the same thing. It has Tarshish in there the whole bit. He 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 saw his life, you know, that he essentially I've got to get this job done before I die. I'm right. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. This is the plan. I mean, it, you you see all these things. Now now let's just take a step back. In, on one level, nothing that I've talked about here was unfamiliar. Eden, the fall, Abraham, power of Babel, Pentecost, gospel, all these things that every Christian knows. Right. But I just put all of that in a different framework. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That, that is what divine counsel stuff does for you. Yeah, it's very, very fascinating. And it, it really does start making some pieces fit together. Now, I... It makes I, a parent whole out of lots of pieces. Right, absolutely. Now, what about um, uh, after the Tower of Babel? Uh, it seems like, I mean, what was the relationship between God and the Divine Council at that point? It seems at some point there there has to be some sort of tension, or it, is that me just putting my own um, no, <laughs> my own God, feelings in there? God expects those who are under Him human or non-human, to rule as he would rule, and that is to rule justly. If you look at Psalm 82, they didn't do that. In Psalm 82, God takes the divine counsel. Again, we don't know if it's all of them or most of them or some of them or whatever. He, he does use the phrase sons of the most high, so that in, in verse 6, I believe it is, he uses that phrase, and then that harkens back to the Most High, you know, terminology in Deuteronomy 32. But what are they getting beat up for in the council? It's for a corrupt, inept, unjust administration of the nations of the world, just because they've been, they're no longer in direct relationship to Yahweh. But we know Yahweh is still interested in them because of the covenant with Abraham. They're a part of that. Even though that's the circumstance, someone who works for me is just. If you're not just, you're not doing your job. And at the very least, I think they're being condemned for not obeying 
uh, God in this way. Now, it could be, and we, because of, of history, the way things work out, who do we blame? Do we blame non-human beings in Yahweh's administration, or do we blame people? Because they were both married to each other in the Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 4 decision. Right. Okay, so when they when they descend into idolatry and they begin worshiping these other deities, that's a transgression as well. That, that was going to be my question: was what sort of actual transgressions happened between the divine council and God that sort of, um, you know, set things off? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of of, of all of that. Uh, the the uh, the deflection of of glory and status as creator and as sovereign uh, over life, the deflection of all that from Yahweh to other divine beings, either by the people or, or by other divine beings. In other words, they're, they're em- embracing this. And you get some language like that elsewhere in the Old Testament too, just about you know, how the God through the prophets will talk about uh, God, other gods and idols and things like that. So I think that's part of it. But I think there's, there's also a sense where, again, if you work for me, you, you are, you're supposed to be like me. You're supposed to be just. These are my laws. And again, yeah, Israel has the law, the Torah that was inscribed. But we know from lots of other books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, whatnot, that there were principles for justice and for fairness and for wise living, uh, for for how fellow imagers, human beings, we're all imagers of God, how imagers, and, and you notice how my answer to you is, is coming out of my own divine counsel context here. Right. Uh, that fellow imagers of God are supposed to treat each other as imagers in a certain way because... We are all in God's image. Okay? That, that is fundamental to ethics, to ethical living, apart from other points of theology. And I think divine beings, because they share the image, are held to the same standard. And, and frankly, if they're in positions of authority, they're held to a greater standard, just like human leaders are. Uh, again, uh, my answer to that is I can't help myself anymore. I mean, it. it I, I, just, <laughs> I just think... I think of all these things when I hear a question like that, uh, that it, it, it informs the way I frame the answer. So Absolutely. If, right. Some of that's not clear, you guys tell me, but I, like I said, it's just a no, reason. No, no, and it's great. And that it, everything, like, like I said, and like you keep saying, is it really does develop a whole new framework about um, how you even start thinking about it's just certain instances in the Bible. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it, it's it's also when we we kid about it in the office. You know, I I have a few you know people that are just have their divine counsel detectors on. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's like they'll look at you and it, and you know we joke with each other, but it's like you know I you want me to write six hundred words for the magazine on this? I, I just can't because I. <laughs> I there's just too much to it, you know. I mean, and I'm, I'm thinking about this and this and this and this, and it's like, can't you ever like divorce? Can't you ever take the divine counsel out of your head just to answer this? And the answer is no, I really can't. Right. Uh, and, and not only that, but I'm I'm unrepentant. You know, I don't want to either. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I I mean, I have a question that's that sort of um I guess it's along the same lines, but so it seems like. In, in Genesis six, we see the sons of God come down and, and mate with human women and, and the Nephilim and all that stuff. 
those are not the 70, right? That were sort of assigned later on. Or is that no? I don't. I don't. I don't see any evidence in Genesis six that there's a connection between those beings and Deuteronomy thirty-two. I mean, chronologically, they're separated by quite a distance, right. and all the all the Jewish tradition on this is in agreement that the original offenders uh, of the Genesis six incident are are imprisoned. You know, right. they are they are somehow bound. You know, in the earth, under the earth. I mean, you get all sorts of descriptions, and some of them, some of those descriptions are used in by Peter and Jude, right, 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 uh, as well. So they, they by definition, can't be the same ones, right? Later at Babel. Now, in Luke four, you know, the the temptation of Jesus, he talks about how you know all the kingdoms have been given to him. Is that part of the the seventy handing over their authority to Satan? Uh, over the course of time, or at, at one point, or when he, when Satan says that they've all been all the nations have been yeah, given to me, yeah. Right. No, I, I I follow the question. Yeah, I I tend to think, and again, we're we're not we're not given these these details in the Old Testament. We are in in the New Testament that in some way the original rebel, as it were, is in some way given higher dominion. Then the uh, how can I say this? Let, let me just say it, and then I'll and then I'll I'll describe it. So some th- some things are better described than trying to put it in a sentence. When let me put it this way: if and I and you know if if you've read my stuff, you know that I do. You know, I, I'm I'm tracking here. If the Genesis three episode has some conceptual and theological relationship to the Isaiah fourteen passage with Hillel ben Shakar, the shining one, the son of the dawn. If that's the case, and if there's also a relationship between Genesis 3 and Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and again, I think there is, and for listeners out there, yes, I'm fully aware that these are these are taunt songs used of the king of Babylon and the prince of Tyre. I, I get it. My point is that in those taunts, they are referencing an older... Uh, story to do so. But if there's a relationship between all three of those things, the offending one, the one who wanted to be like the most high is cast down to quote unquote, the earth or the ground. Now, arts in biblical Hebrew is the word for earth or land or ground, but it is also used of the underworld in a couple passages. And Frank, in fact, outside of biblical literature, especially Canaanite Ugaritic literature, the term is found even more for the underworld. So what am I saying? I'm saying that this original offender in some way was made Lord of the dead, Lord of the underworld. And that also had something to do with a wider dominion over the earth. I think specifically, you know, that sort of casts him not only as the rebel in terms of prime of place and chronology, but also this fallen terrestrial realm in some way is under his thumb. And I think the specific way, and specifically that is conquered in in, in the first coming of Jesus and, and the cross, is that all humans who die without redemption were his. 
Okay, they belong to him. He's the mm. Lord. To have life, they need to be aligned with Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the giver of life. Wow. So you have this sense, and again, it's just a sense. We're not given much detail in the Old Testament, right. but even in the Old Testament, you have this sense that there's something going on here that, that affects the whole world. Well, when you get to Deuteronomy 32, that's referring to an earthly uh, administration, essentially a sev- God's severing his relationship with humanity at large in favor of calling out a new human family uh, through Abraham who will be Israel. That doesn't really uh, pertain to the, to the sort of uh, I hate to use the phrase realm responsibility or realm authority uh, that the original rebel had. But by the time you get into the intertestamental period and you get into the New Testament, there is more of a sort of a hierarchical flavor to this where you have devil, this, you know, Satan, whatever you know, term is used. Um, that is sort of assumed to be, you know, in, in greater control you know, of all the kingdoms of the world. Now, one way you could look at this, and I'm actually still thinking about this, is that the punishment of Psalm 82 was meted out, and the only thing you're really left with is the devil and his angels running the earth. Mm, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not completely persuaded of that. Uh, right. because, uh, on, here's how I've, how I've argued in the past, and I, I'm going to give you the argument, and then I'll give you its weakness. I've, I've argued that in the book of Revelation, the, the divisions uh, noted in Deuteronomy 32 and Deuteronomy 4 are important because there is talk about, to him that overcomes, in other words, the believer in the book of Revelation, I will put him over the nations. In other words, we as believers uh, in, in Christ, we will inherit the nations. We will displace the authorities that are over them now. We will we will become the reconstituted council mm-hmm. of Yahweh, ruling on earth as his imagers. That is the plan of, of, of New Testament salvation. That's because everything morphs into a new earth, new heaven and new earth. Right, right. So that that that's the plan. So I I, I tend to think you, you sort of need some of that in place. Plus you get Pauline language. Look at the look at the, the terms Paul uses for enemy divine agents principalities, powers, mm-hmm. rule, authorities, thrones. They're all rulership and geographical terminology. Right, right, right. Okay. Wow. So either, either the Psalm 82 beings are still in effect, but you know, the devil sort of gets primacy of place in the New Testament. That, that might be one view. Or, you know, the, 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 the sons of God over the nations in that are getting castigated in Psalm 82 have already been dealt with and punished. I mean, I, I don't know which is the most coherent. I kind of favor uh, the first one that the uh, the structures are still sort of in place from the Old Testament. But be that as right. it may, when when the when the devil shows up, I mean, either view this is workable, and he says to Jesus, "Bow down to me, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth." That was a serious offer because by God's sovereignty, okay, he was Lord of the Eretz. He was Lord of the earth and he was Lord of the realm of the dead as well. And in some way, he had authority to do this. 
you know, all you need to do is is worship me, and and I'll give you these things. You know, now he's not dumb. He's not thinking. I'm going to hoodwink Jesus. Jesus doesn't know that he's ultimately. I'll bet I can pull this one over on him. No, what he what the offer really says is you don't need to go to the cross to get this. Mm. Wow. You don't need to do that. Wow. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. That's, yep. Divine counsel filters on now. (laughs) Another passage that I had a question about and just curiosity about is in 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about head coverings. Mm -hmm. And in verse 10, there's just a little thing that says, you know, that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head <laughs> because of the angels. And, you know, there's nothing else elaborated on that. But what's your take on why that's there? Why Paul even mentions do, angels? Do, do any children listen to this program? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. I want to I hear <laughs> whatever Let's, you've got. Yeah. All right, I, well, I, I, I will I, say the children I do know listen to it. The parents do screen the episodes first, so okay, we're okay. safe. All right, I have I have what is going to sound like a really odd view of this. Okay, but I think it makes complete sense, and I'm not the only one. I mean, I again, I, I have to credit you know other scholars you know who've written serious articles on this, but I think uh, there's one view that I, I believe has real explanatory power, and that is there is. Good evidence that the terminology in this passage uh, related to hair, and of course the hair is the head covering, and the wife and the husband and all this kind of stuff, is borrowing from uh, medical terminology of the day. Now again, we're dealing with a first century culture, they don't know anything about genetics, they don't, don't have you know, scientific knowledge you know, like, like we do. But we're talking about head coverings that being disgraceful you know, to cut the hair and shave the head and, and husbands and wives and all this kind of stuff. And then you, you're right. You got this weird statement in there because of the angels. Okay. One argument is that if you go back to medical texts in the classical you know, Greek world and the, and the world of the Testament, there was a very common belief that a woman's fecundity, her ability to have children, her ability to conceive, had something to do with her hair and the length of her hair. So it, it was, it's, a, it's sort of a medical myth that, you know, if you had long hair, that would help you conceive. It was kind of like, you know, eating oysters, you know, today will help you, you know, conceive something. <laughs> right. One of these wives' tales kinds of things, but you'll actually see it in the medical journals. And so some argue that the head covering, because again, of the Greek terminology, is actually a reference to um, fecundity or testicular health or something like that. It has something to do with the ability to conceive and bear children. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's very odd, but if that's the case, if this passage has something to do with catching drift here, sexual activity and the raising up of children, especially in a Christian context, 
wives and husbands being loyal to each other, wives, again, fidelity to the husband, the whole bit. Then when Paul says, you need to, you need to be thinking about this and taking care of all, of all this. Oh, of my gosh. Okay. Right. Now, now, I read that article. And it, it's an, I could, I could send it to you guys if you send me an email. It's about, you know, is the head covering the testicle or something like that. <laughs> right. It's in a scholarly peer-reviewed journal. When I read this, I emailed the author and said, said, hey, you know, I really liked your article. You know, it made me think of it. it made me think of Genesis 6. And, you know, right, right. I, I, so I, I, I said, to me, that this, has, this has a lot of, this is consistent with that. It's consistent with this other material. And I, said, I wanted to know what you think. And he wrote back to me and said, yeah, I'm there too. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, because he, he didn't put it in the article. Right. But, I mean, I look at that, and the first thing I thought of, with the reference to angelic beings, is Genesis six. What else would you think of? Yeah. Wow. No, I mean, that's so what... it, it was the idea of, of we need we need to keep our social relationships pure, and because you know we're, we're raising up you know families, we're having children, we want children to be brought up you know for the Lord and all this kind of stuff. We want to keep our mar- marital unit and our children, our sexual activity whole within this unit and pure. And you better be careful here because. Because of the angels and hide your fertility from the angels. <laughs> yeah, my yeah. goodness! Wow. Again, that's not the only view, right? Of, of that, but I think it has a lot of explanatory power for for what really looks like a very odd phrase. Now, now the word angels in this text is this the same sort of Elohim thing where it's you, you know it might not necessarily be angels as we think of them. It might be. You know, this the same sort of beings that were involved in a Genesis six situation. Um, well, we're we're dealing with Greek, so we're not okay. going to get Elohim because that's a okay. Hebrew. Word. Right. We're dealing the, the word is your normal word for angel, you know, angelos, okay. specifically angeloi in the plural, All right. which is the word that was used to translate, you know, Genesis six and other passages. By the way, I, I should I should mention something here. One of the I think it's a it's an academic myth here of, of sorts. The idea that uh, you know the, the the gods sort of die off in Israelite religion, and then they all of a sudden the, the the light dawns in their brains, and they become monotheists. And after that point, and they start referring to gods as angels because they, there's a problem there. Okay. Uh, and in Greek literature, you know, they're always called angels and not gods. That is not true. Okay. Uh, in this in the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint actually varies. Like in Psalm 82, the Septuagint will have theoi, God. But in other passages, it'll have angels. In other words, it's not consistent. You can't argue that, prove some sort of evolution in Israelite religion, you know, because they're all afraid of, of, of affirming plural Elohim. Well, part of my dissertation, again, pardon me, folks, is I went back into the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I looked for all the occurrences of plural Elohim in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now this is turn, you know, century, century two before Jesus, and the same first century. So by this time, you know, we're supposedly we've all become monotheists, and we don't want to hear any talk about plural Elohim. I mean, that this is what the mainstream academic community does. Which, again, one of the reasons I picked the topic was I thought that was just nuts because when I counted them. There are over 180 places in the Dead Sea Scrolls where you have a reference to plural. Elohim, and many of those are in divine council contexts. You know, councils, you know, hmm. same terminology for council. And it's like, look, you know, if 
everybody was supposed to evolve toward this. You either have some really dumb scribes or they just didn't get the memo. You know, it just it doesn't make any sense. And what, and what I, again, was trying to argue is, look, this term has nothing to do with a single set of attributes and monotheism. It's about beings that inhabit the spiritual world, you know, and, and that, that can clearly be distinguished from the uniqueness of the God of Israel. Right. So, um, okay, there's a couple directions I want to take this, but one question that I had was, and I, I guess you sort of answered this, but maybe you can allude to it more definitively. Are the divine council there now? Are they in charge now? And yeah, I, th- I think God has a heavenly host. He has heavenly bureaucracy. And I, I, th- I think that the New Testament language, the, the, the geographical spiritual being language Paul and others use, uh, denotes the fact that the nations of the earth all around us uh, are under dominion and they need to be won back and reclaimed through the advancement of the kingdom of God uh, through the gospel. It is a spiritual war in a very real sense like that. In, in almost every, a terrestrial sense even. Yes. Well, it, it, what is, what is the divine council at the beginning? As in heaven so on earth mm. as in the divine realm so on earth i mean this is not accidental thinking this is not accidental language there there is there's free will and conflict and obedience and disobedience in the spiritual realm and it's the same in the earthly realm and it is it is a fight for supremacy you know we uh, here's a here's a common christian myth and you know where's the bible for this the idea that that oh well all the angels that that can fall and rebel they already did that and and now like this the lines are drawn and everybody picks sides and right right yeah well where's the verse for that Mm. honestly where is it you know the the short answer is there ain't none right yeah this the new testament picture is one of conflict an ongoing conflict and and what you know what match are we against them well you know, you know, just like in the Old Testament, God was, you know, in Eden, and that was where God like really lived, and and the garden imagery, and Eden is called a mountain too. You know, that gets transferred to Sinai, and then that gets transferred to the tabernacle. This is why the tabernacle was decorated like a garden. You know, so why the temple was decorated like a garden with the pomegranates, and the pomegranates and the palm trees and all the animals and stuff like this. You know, and and guess what? Who's the temple of God now? Uh, that would be us. Okay, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. He uses, in one passage, he uses the singular, you the temple of God. In the other passage, he uses the, the, the plural for corporate. You know, the whole the, the New Testament conversation about, about our bodies are now the skene, the skin. The skene is the same word used for tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Huh. Well, I mean, the the whole thing at Pentecost. There's a point to it. It's not just the, you know new, the New Testament writers get up one day and say, "Hey, I want to write something clever today." And <laughs> I, want to, I want to vary my vocabulary because that thing I wrote yesterday that was okay, but you know if if I use the same words here, I'm going to get accused of you know like boring, being boring or something. So like, what, what what can we talk about? You know, it, that is not what's going on. There's an intelligence behind all of it 
that is trying to communicate very specific theological ideas and theological trajectories and a story that is being played out uh, that will end as it began, as God wanted it to be. And again, it's, it's the, these story arcs we get in the New Testament that if we're familiar with the way they were thinking in the Old Testament, not only is that made clear, but what the New Testament writers are doing with it becomes significant. Right. And I think that's a great segue, I feel like, into the topic of UFOs and ETs, because on one hand, it was quite startling for me, you know, when I first heard your work, you know, that you talk about aliens and all this stuff, it's like, what is a, a Bible scholar doing talking about all this? But it really, it seems to have its place. Can you sort of describe to us why you think the, the ET UFO phenomenon is, is part of this whole conversation with, you know, what's the yeah, connection I, point with the divine council? I, I think, well, let's start out real broadly. Okay. People at, well, you know, I've I've had I've had some days at, at church, and I've had some episodes with Christians that I, I've almost wanted to say that people at UFO conferences are more in tune to thinking about important big picture spiritual <laughs> oh, things than any of you people, right? Um, because they they are they they are predisposed to asking big picture questions like, is there a God? And if there is, why am I here? Did he make me? How did he make me? What's my purpose? What does the whole thing mean? You know, they're they're sort of there already in terms of being ripe to discuss these sorts of questions and and doing it in a in a really broad you know kind of way. Now, specifically, I think when it comes to this whole issue of of ET, I think it an interest in this reflects. <laughs> You know, some people have had an experience that they can't parse, okay, or and and it makes them question traditional theism, or it makes them question their their Christian faith, uh, whether it was seeing something or a so-called you know abduction experience. And there are lots of Christians in, in in churches that have had these experiences, and your listeners might not believe that, but I'm here to tell you, I've had them come up to me at conferences, and sometimes it's good. You know, the, they might have a wacky Bible interpretation, but it's, it's keeping them in the fold. And then other times, of those, uh, if I've heard the, this line once, I've heard it a you know, hundred times, I used to be a Christian until, and then they'll come up with something like this. So some, some of these subjects, the whole subject of ET or an experience, will prompt people to ask deep questions about scripture, about God, about Jesus, about angels, about all this stuff. And if you can't give them some sort of coherent answer, or if, if, if you just sort of say, well, I'd love to talk to you, but you need therapy, um, they are going to write you off and they're going to write the faith off. Right. I mean, I've just seen it happen over and over again. They're just going to do it. And, and a lot of them don't want to do it. Yeah. But they, they feel driven to do it. And so not only have I always been interested in the idea, you know, the subject matter, but it, it became very clear to me pretty early that it was it had theological ramifications in a lot of ways uh, to, you know, the, the, the subject matter meant a lot. And if you actually get into the UFO literature, the contact literature especially, the messaging that the so-called visitors 
you know, are, are giving to people is actually very theological. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really bad theology. Right, yeah, <laughs> right. uh, it's, it, it's, it's the elevation of, of humanity above God, above anything else, because it's all about human transformation. It's all about human evolution. It's all about the visitors helping us to become what they are, or, or, or we're you in a more higher evolved state, or we're here to help you, you know, save your planet so that you have time to evolve to some, you know, grand, you know, metaphysical this or that. Uh, you know, there's so much, there's just truckloads of that in the contactee literature that it's, I don't know how you can read any of that stuff or some measure of it and not come away understanding that this is really theological turf. Right. And, and what's, what's getting discussed here is not about nuts and bolts and, you know, equations for gravity and stuff like this. This is, this is theological stuff. And so that's, that's why I think it's important uh, to, to be conversant with and to be able to talk to people or sort of, in that space. Right. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, I've, I've looked into the new age and I even, before I discovered a lot of, uh, you know, the, the small community of Christians talking about these things, there was a point where I was getting really sort of concerned about, Hey, because I had become a believer. It had only been a couple of years and I started asking questions about UFOs and ETs and all kinds of stuff. And what I didn't realize at the time, but I came to realize afterwards was that all of the messages of, either channeling spirits or, you know, ET encounters or anything like that. They're always addressing who Jesus is and, and mm-hmm. they all have a different take. It's, right. it's not consistent. Yeah, they're, they're, they're never, they're never critiquing Allah or Buddha. Right, exactly. Or yeah. it's, just, it's always about critiquing Jesus and Christianity. <laughs> you know, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and, wow. And, and to some extent, sometimes they, they want to include Jesus as part of their message and it's a twisted mm-hmm. Jesus of course but uh, yeah I, I mean when I came to realize that it was like oh wow why did I even you know I didn't see that before but it's it's just so tempting to want to have some kind of want something more out of the Bible but then you realize you know you run into you know Dr. Michael Heiser and you realize that there's just way way more there than than um, you initially thought um, yeah, I want to I want to be clear with with the audience again in principle the if you know if, if we woke up tomorrow and, and NASA said you know we've been sitting on this for years but you know we have evidence that we believe that intelligent extraterrestrial life at one time did exist on Mars we don't see any evidence of it now but millions of years ago you know there was certainly a civilization here and you know I guess they're gone or dead or whatever you know who knows mm-hmm. you know you say something like that on the surface again you know just at, at face value that doesn't bother me you know, for a number of reasons because, again, I don't see anything forbidding God from doing that. Right. What bothers me is that that sort of point of data will get immediately um, usurped and you know, confiscated by the crowd who wants to, to take that data point and then turn it into theological messaging. Right, and, and you just know that that's going to happen because we, we haven't had that announcement, and it's already happening a lot, and it has been happening for decades. You know, so so certain people are primed in a certain way to whether there's any evidence or not. If if, if that 
one or two sentences I just gave you, you know, supposedly from NASA, if that was all they ever said, they said nothing about structures. They said nothing about religious symbols. Nothing about any sort of, you know, textual evidence. They, they said nothing except what I just said. It wouldn't matter to millions. They would just mentally fill in those gaps with mythology. You know, the, the modern ancient astronaut mythology. Right. There, there's not a shred of evidence to make these connections, but nobody's going to care. Because right. they don't care now. Right. You know, <laughs> they're just going to run with it. And I think that to, that to me is a far greater concern. And people are saying, oh, you're just, you're just saying that because you want to defend this or that theological point, blah, blah, blah. Well, at the heart of it, I'd really like what I believe to be data-driven rather than air-driven. Right. I mean, I'd really like that. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you? Right. I mean, I believe something based upon the, you know, the, these data points here. You believe something because it, it's like popped into your head. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, but that that is just not coherent. So even on the on the very most basic level, um, I think people, I would hope, you know, would just sort of stop themselves and go, oh, wait a minute, you know, do, can I really say this? But I have to be honest with you, I don't think that's what people would do. I think they would just go off in La La Land, you know, and canonize Zechariah Sitchin or something like that. <laughs> right. You know, and there we go. You know, it just. <laughs> yeah. I'm not very optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let me ask you this because I'd heard you in the past give your sentiments about prophecy, and and you know, I know that you don't fit into any sort of category, and I know you, I, I kind of like that about you that you don't adhere to any kind of established you know, whether it's the rapture debate or anything else, but do you have an actual perspective on, you know, what it might look like, what things might look like as, as prophecy sort of unfolds? Um, and I know, you know, I, I really enjoyed, and I'll link this uh, video as well, but you did a talk on why we believe what we do. And mm -hmm. um, I, I just thought it was a great, a great uh, lecture. Uh, but do you actually have a personal, you know, opinion or, or thought, process of how things are going to unfold and and on top of it does the et thing have anything or have a place in that in your view now now you're getting on uh sequel turf so okay I need, to, <laughs> <laughs> I need to i need to measure myself here um i think there are certain things in eschatology that are that are pretty clear uh they're, but they're they're a few in number uh obviously the lord's return i don't think that that has any ambiguity to it i think there you know there will be uh an apocalyptic time of judgment associated with that uh i i do believe that the new heaven on new earth will be the new kingdom of god so i, I don't like to use the word premillennial for that because that's too restrictive it's not just a thousand years it's forever Right. Um, so I don't like the term premillennial. I all millennialists wouldn't like me because I'm I'm saying it, it's really going to be here on Earth. And the reason I think that is because of the whole reclamation of the nations idea. Right. I think that that transpired on Earth and it needs to end right here on Earth too. Yeah. Uh, God originally came to Earth, uh, wanted you know to to dwell with his his creatures. I don't see why that would change. I think Revelation tells us that it doesn't change. That's still the goal, because at the end of the day, God's going to stick his flag in the place and say, I win. All right. And so to, to me, that requires an earthly eschatological kingdom. Um, so uh, in those respects, you know, I'm, I'm there, but I just 
I don't, none of that quite fits the labels that are used. You know, it, it doesn't, doesn't quite fit in there, but, but I don't really care. Other people do, but I don't care. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that, that's my, that's my eschatology that Satan will be defeated. The, the son of God will, will be revealed and inherit the earth. Uh, we will, we will be the reconstituted council of Yahweh along with those non-human beings that are loyal to him. We will commune with each other. We'll rule with each other on earth. We will be glorified. We will be like him. We will be divine. We will be glorified. We will be deified in that sense. Uh, we will not become little Yahwehs like Mormonism teaches. We don't get our own planets and then we repeat the process. Right. Uh, but but we, this is what John says in First John. You know, Behold what manner of love that the Father has shown to us that we should be called the children of God. And then he adds, and that's what we are. I don't know if you ever noticed that. <laughs> right. First John chapter three, he says, and that is what we are. It kind of gives a nice little. Make sure everybody heard that point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Paul talking about the unveiling of the sons of God, that the creation groans for this moment. Uh, you know, all of that I think is is earthly. I think it's real, quote unquote, literal. You know, literal is too elastic a term. I, I like to, I like to just say, hey, it, it, it's real and it happens here. You know, on a new, on a new earth. But, you know, beyond that, I see a lot of ambiguity in prophecy. And my view is that at the first coming, there were a number of things that were deliberately cryptic. Um, and and this, this is shocking to the sensibilities of, of a lot of Christians. So, again, you might want to step out of your room. <laughs> it's okay. That's, that's, that's what we love about you. So lay it out. I'm just, I'm giving you the warning. So... Um, there, we tend to look at the Bible and as we read the New Testament and the, the prophet will say, this and that happened as it was written or that this and that would be fulfilled and blah, 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 blah. You know, we rarely actually look back at the passages that the writer is quoting or supposed to be quoting, but that's a really interesting exercise. Mm. Uh, there are fundamental things about Jesus as Messiah that you look back and you just got to scratch your head like, I would have never thought that this passage would play out this way, like Matthew or somebody else is telling me. Even things like virgin birth. Okay, Isaiah seven fourteen. You know, everybody knows the passage. It's Christmas time, you know, so on and so forth. You know, behold the, you know, virgin. It's actually Hebrew Alma, you know, which uh, I, I think, well, people can go up to my Naked Bible blog and look at virgin birth stuff. I affirm the virgin birth because it's very clearly taught in the New Testament. But Allah, by in and of itself, doesn't say anything about the sexual status of a woman. Now, in that culture, most young women were, by default, virgins. Okay? They just didn't have the teen culture that we do today. So, conceptually, there's a lot of overlap, even though there's a different word that's more specific, betula, uh, for virgin. But here we have the, the virgin birth passage, and oh, that's that's Jesus. Well, nobody ever reads verse fifteen, do they? Hmm. Everybody knows Isaiah seven fourteen. The very next verse says, "He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good." Verse sixteen. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
The prophecy is given to King Ahaz. Isaiah 7 says it point blank. Mm. This is a prophecy for you, King Ahaz, because you're in trouble. You're under threat by these two countries and these two kings. Ask God. He'll give you a sign. He's going to deliver you, but but ask for a sign. The king says, well, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm too pious. And then that's why Isaiah gets mad and says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey before he goes to refuse the evil and choose the good. Before the kid's old enough to eat solid food, your problem is going to be over. Mm. Wow. This is why no Jewish interpreter ever thought Isaiah 7 was messianic because it was fulfilled in Ahaz's own lifetime. Well, then what in the world's Matthew doing? Well, I'll tell you what Matthew's doing. Matthew is reasoning by analogy. He's lived with Jesus for three and a half years. We know that Jesus' mother, along with a few other women, traveled with them. And I'll bet you, at some point where they're sitting around, you know, having coffee in between sermons and whatnot and getting chased by the Pharisees or whatever, Matthew hears the story of how Jesus was born. Mary tells them, you know, the angel came to me and said, you're, you're with child, and I didn't know what to do, and Joseph and I, you know, weren't intimate until we had this kid, and there he is, you know. We just, we didn't know what to do, what to expect, but but we're living it now. And so, three and a half years, we get the, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Matthew is doing his ministry, and he looks around at himself one day and says, man, I'm getting old. I better write some of this stuff down. Because, you know, I expect the Lord to come back, but if he doesn't, you know, we need to preserve this, you know, for, for posterity. And he starts to write his gospel, and he thinks back, he, he's starting at the Jesus' birth, and he goes, wow, Jesus and his family, they went to Egypt. And, and you know, they had to come out of Egypt. That's just like Hosea 11, out of Egypt I have called my son. And this whole story about the birth of Jesus, that's just like Isaiah. You know, because that was a supernatural birth. God gave them a sign that he would be with them and deliver them from evil. And, you know, he's, he's, he's looking back at the Old Testament and he's connecting dots. Right. Wow. But, but it, wasn't, it, it, it wasn't clear and it couldn't be clear until after the fact. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. A lot of prophecies like this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, and I take him seriously here. I think Paul was not just, you know, blustering here again, kind of out of things to write about. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that, I'm going to get the exact verse here because I don't want to paraphrase it. Okay. He says, look, if the rulers of this world, okay, and that's a phrase he uses in other passages to talk about, again, non-human beings, all right? You know, if the rulers of this world had known, okay, had known, had they, if they had understood this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's talking about the gospel, he says in verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood that if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What that tells you is that the gospel, the task, the messianic task was a secret. Paul calls it a mystery elsewhere. Huh. It was cryptic. Why? 
they didn't, they didn't want the demonic entities to go. Mm. When now they know who he is, because you see this all the time in the Gospels. You know, Jesus is walking along, and he run, you know, gets confronts a demon, and it says, "Ah, oh, you know, you're Jesus, you're Christ, the Son of God." Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Just shut up. <laughs> okay, you got it right. Now shut up and get out of here. Right. Okay, they know who he is, but they didn't know the plan. Mm. They didn't know the plan, and so now put yourself in their shoes. Okay, all right, we know he's here. Now he's here. We're here. We're in trouble. We know he's here. What do we do? What do we do? What do, we, what do we do? Well, we gotta get rid of him. We'll kill him. Oh, it's great. <laughs> you know how do we how do we pull that off? Well, let's think about it. Let's go. Not knowing that that was the key event to their own doom. Uh, they so, didn't get it. Okay, they were, they were outwitted. And, and they were outwitted. They were outplanned. They were outmaneuvered. They were outthought. Okay, you know, they, they, they brought the knife to the gunfight. I mean, it just, <laughs> you know, it, they, they just didn't get it. But here's my point. And, and this is just a smidgen. Prophecy is very complicated. A lot of passages are not fulfilled literally in the sense that there's this thing talked about in the old, and then it has a one-to-one correspondent thing of the same kind in the new. A lot of it doesn't work that way. And then you have this cryptic stuff going on. Here's the question. How do we know? that the second time around, it's not the same way. Mm. That we're just getting, we're just getting what I call the, the messianic mosaic. There's just data points floating all around here through the Old Testament. There's no clear verses on all, like, like did, didn't you ever think about this? When Jesus is, t- is teaching him something, you know, like Peter, who do men say that I am? Well, some say this, some say that. Well, who do you say I am? Well, you're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. What does Jesus say? Hey, you knew that because you knew this page reference over here and this chapter verse reference. Good job, Peter. You can read. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't say that. He says okay. it's correct, but the, and you know this because it was revealed to you. Mm. Wow. Okay. The Spirit of God told you this. Right. A lot, even fundamental things about the Messiah that you couldn't just go look up. There are these little data points floating around so that after the fact, again, assisted, as we know, the context of inspiration by the Spirit, it's like, wow, I would have never thought this. I would have never thought that, but it just fits so well. Here's this piece. Here's that piece. And it creates this mosaic about the Messiah, what he would he would. You know what he would do, what he would say, and it all—it was all there, and we couldn't see it because we didn't have the filter. It was all there; it was hidden in plain sight. And I personally think that that's why prophecy is ambiguous. That's why prophecy is not clear, because it is designed that way. It's just built in, because this is a conflict. Right? Is that? I'm trying to think here, uh, trying to sort of wrap my mind around it. Is that similar to where, you know, in Acts 2.17, where um, uh, Luke quotes, it seems like anyway, he quotes Joel 2.28 about, you know, your sons and daughters will prophecy and young men will see visions. And in that particular instance, is that a one-to-one, you know? Those things were associated with, they were associated with, with several things. The, the whole idea of, of uh, I hate to use this term, but sort of an egalitarian pouring out of the spirit. Okay. Um, 
that you didn't see in the Old Testament, but it's suggested by the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. And so you, you get certain, and, and the New Covenant in turn was, was associated with a time yet future, the, the eschaton. Um, and so when, when Peter is quoting you know, the, these sorts of passages, it's a telegraphing that we are living at, at this time when evil is going to be judged and the spirit is going to come and so on and so forth. So there, there's some of that going on. Um, you know, and of course the new, the new covenant, you know, being associated with the crucifixion and all this kind of stuff. So it, it, it situates that language in, in their day. If you went back and looked at the old Testament, you can't really figure out the when all you get is, is a what almost without a, with, without any help, you know, without any chronological context, without any, any sort of framework. It just, it's just sort of there, you know? And so, you know, they're, they're, they're situating things as they're, they're experiencing them. And as, as they themselves are, are, especially in that whole sermon with Acts two with Peter, you know, that, that they're, they're beginning to figure it out. They're beginning to see what place they are at in relationship to what Jesus has just come and accomplished. Right. Okay. Um, I had heard you explain baptism that you had a, you had, I can't remember if it was on a podcast or, or what, but I've, I've been trying to, I, I was excited to have you on for all these different things, but there was one question that I had about baptism and you had compared it to the passage where Jesus goes down and into the underworld or so, something along those lines. Can you elaborate on that real quick? Cause it was when I heard you talk about it and I, again, I can't remember where it was, but it was fascinating. Um, I was I, say it, it, it freaked you out. <laughs> well, I, I just thought it was really cool and I tried to explain it to somebody, but I, I don't think I had it fully, you know, I, I knew the concept, but I couldn't articulate it very well to people. So, right. Well, in, in, in a nutshell, okay, we're talking about the, the, the passage specifically is first Peter three. Okay, and again, it's, it's the really odd passage that sort of, for some reason combines baptism and, and Noah and the flood and the ark, you know, it's just, you know, let's just be honest. It's weird. Okay. <laughs> And yeah, this this is actually one of my favorite uh, New Testament passages. And you know, you really, I think, you really benefited when you approach this with Genesis six in mind, because it does take you back to the, to, to to that issue. I have to prep it by saying this: the only way you're really going to understand what's going on in this passage is to understand what typology is. Now. We're familiar with prophecy, verbal prophecy. Okay, the prophet utters something. It's a predictive sort of statement, and then we look and see if it's fulfilled later. Okay, simple enough. Types, typology, is a non-verbal prophecy. That is, there is an event in the Old Testament or a person or an institution that prefigures something that will come later but it's not verbal it, it just is like like the passover lamb prefigured you know the sacrifice of christ right okay something like that so 
there are a number of these sort of things. Uh, you know, Paul actually uses the, 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 the Greek term tupos type for the, the, the Passover lamb for Adam. Okay, at Jesus is the second Adam. Adam was a type of Jesus and all this kind of stuff. He actually says this. So, what you have going on here in 1 Peter 3 is, this is going to sound really bizarre, so I'm giving you the warning. You might want to step out of the room. <laughs> As Adam was a type of Jesus, as, as Adam as a person prefigured something about Jesus, his life, his person would be comparable, correlative in some way. So what Peter is saying here is Enoch was also a type of Jesus, a prefigurement of Jesus. Now, what I'm getting at here is in Jewish literature between the Testaments, we know that Peter in his epistles, first and second Peter and Jude, of course, quote, uh, second temple period literature. And that body of literature was very invested in, very conversant with, and really considered important the whole episode in Genesis six. And so what's the story of Enoch according to the Jewish literature that the new Testament writers sometimes quote directly. I'm going to say in a moment that first Peter three is an allusion uh, to some of this, but anyway, the story is if you have read Enoch, that the washers come down, they're the sons of God of Genesis six and they cohabit with human women. They get in all sorts of trouble. God says, I'm angry. I'm going to punish them. And he throws them into this prison and the offending sons of God, you know, ask God you know, to forgive them and to relent and somehow or another, they are able to get Enoch to go with their petition for forgiveness right. to God. Right. So Enoch takes it to God. God listens to it and says, well, you go back and you tell those guys, no. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, you're toast. I'm not going to change my mind. Okay, this is your punishment. He goes back and he sends into the prison, the underworld, where they are kept in chains, and delivers the bad news. You know, let's take, back, take that back to 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey and God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, so on and so forth. What Peter's saying is, look, just like Enoch went down and told the spirits in prison, your toast, Jesus did that too. The very moment when they thought Jesus was conquered He's died, he, he died on the cross. Jesus descends to the underworld and says, I know that you're glad to see me because you think you've won, but have I got a message for you? Oh, my <laughs> oh, gosh. Wow. That's toast. heavy. You're toast. You lose. And he connects it, Peter connects it with baptism. He talks about, again, we don't have time to go into all the exegesis. You know, he, he talks about connecting it with Noah and the ark and all this kind of stuff. The, the, 
the term conscience there is important. And again, some of the other ones, basically what you have here, the connection with baptism is this. It's not that baptism saves anyone, but baptism occurs as a result or in connection with a good conscience. A, a, you, you could also translate it a, a, a decision to be loyal to God, a, a, a crisis conscience decision to choose that you will follow the resurrected Christ. And so what it makes baptism is it makes baptism spiritual warfare. Mm. Because at baptism, you are declaring whose side you're on. And when you do that, the spirits in prison, it, it's like they hear it all over again. You lose, mm. you lose. And you've lost wow. another one. You've lost another one. You lose again and again and again. This is why the passage ends with this verse. Okay. A good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven now and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Oh. It's also why the early church included renunciation of Satan and his angels, the demons, in their early baptismal formulas because they saw it as choosing sides and, and reminding the forces of darkness of the resurrection and that here's another person you know, who, who, has, who has made his loyalty decision yeah. against the powers of darkness. So, I mean, Peter, he's, again, his readers, are they're going to be clicking on this because they're familiar with the literature. They're familiar with the traditions, you know, their own traditions. Right. And, you know, carrying that into the, into the earliest church period, again, it's very logical that Christians would include this sort of language in their baptismal formulas because it, it, was, a, it was a part of the ways. You know, it, we're, we're, we're choosing this path. And you are no longer our master, especially for Gentiles. Again, here we go back to the Deuteronomy 32 thing. The church is circumcision neutral. Christ is the Messiah for all nations. We are no longer under your authority. This is why Paul looks at the people in Galatia. He's writing to Gentiles and says, are you insane? You know, having been, having been imprisoned, you know, to, to, the, to these powers and having met Jesus, now you want to go back? Are you nuts? You know, I mean, he, he uses this language like this that, you know, for the sort of spiritual insanity about these people, you know, being weak in their faith. And again, you, you, when you read certain things in the New Testament and you have, again, a lot of this stuff floating around in your head, it, it just gives you a context for why writers are saying what they're saying in the context in which they're saying it. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Well, Dr. Michael Heiser, this has been just a, an amazing talk with you tonight. Um, and I just want to remind everybody to make sure to go to michaelsheiser.com. We're going to put it in the show notes. We're also going to uh, put a lot of other things in the show notes. So make sure to stop by canarycryradio.com and check that out for the new episode. They, they can also use the, the simpler redirect. Uh, okay. I, I, I got a clue here with my website because people couldn't spell my last name. Okay. And that's just drmsh.com. It'll redirect my main page. Drmsh. Like doctor and then my initials. So there it drmsh.com. is. Drmsh.com. Dot com. And he also, at the top of his site there, he's got 
all the links to just all of his uh, other blogs. Too many to name. Um, so make sure to go check that out. And you've also um, got some literature in the works, do you not? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm heavily into the uh, the sequel to the facade. So if people go up to drmsh.com, okay, there are links that they can learn about uh, the original book, the facade, and then also uh, either get it in paperback. It's fifty percent off uh, from now till the end of the year. Uh, and then there's a special edition for digital uh, devices like Nook and Kindle and all that sort of stuff. Right. And if you get the special edition, you get the first five chapters of the sequel, which is called Ooh. The Portent. Portent, cool. of course, is, is, a, is a, a bad omen of things to come. I was going <laughs> to ask you, like, what, what are you going to do when um, they're going to start microchipping these uh, tablets and things into our brain? Are you going to... Are you going to embrace some of these technologies? You can, or? You can just blink and download. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it'll, you have it, guys. It'll come with a theology app. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Make sure to go check that out. Get a copy of The Facade, either paperback or digital edition. And thanks again for listening to Canary Cry Radio. Thank you again, Dr. Michael Heiser. Yep, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And so there you go, folks. Make sure to tune in next time for another episode of Canary Cry Radio. And until next time, think outside the cage. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Well, that, oh my goodness. That, that was, was awesome. great. That might have been one of my, uh, oh, I forgot to mention your snazzy looking picture there you have on your website people can go look at that too no, um, I just frighten them so. <laughs> oh man I will say that you 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 at least that picture shows quite the academic side of yourself so whoever took that picture for you you need to um, get my, nice my, my boss took it for me he got tired of my other one <laughs> <laughs> I only had I only had one, so he, he didn't like that one. <laughs> well, he just he, well he did a good thing, so you can you know say thanks uh, and yeah. tell him tell him all the uh, compliments that you got from some <laughs> random guy named Basil. Yeah, he'll he'll like that because he's photography. So <laughs> perfect, well, great, great, great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com. Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at canarycryradio. If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. Review us on iTunes with five stars and give us a thumbs up on stumbleupon.com. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially, you could do so by visiting canarycryradio.com and clicking the support tab. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, remember to think outside the cage. <laughs>